A very long time ago, one of the very first Israelite writers, name unknown to us, composed a victory poem. It was a song to celebrate the Israelites' victory over a Canaanite king, and it was unusual in at least one respect. The two victorious heroes exalted in the poem were women. And there's something else. This poem might very well be the single oldest piece of the Hebrew Bible, and it's the earliest Hebrew poem ever found. It may have been written as early as the 1100s BCE, when the Israelites were just coalescing as a specific national identity. They had burst onto the scene around 100 years earlier, and the pharaoh Merneptah placed them in Canaan in the year 1208 BCE. This victory poem is known as the Song of Deborah, and you'll find it in the fifth chapter of the Book of Judges. The previous chapter also relates the events that took place. It concerns Deborah, who was the leader of the Israelites. She summoned her top general, a man named Barak, to tell him that God commanded him to fight the army of a local Canaanite king and to kill their general, a warrior named Sisera. Barak accepted the mission, but was leery of undertaking it alone. He insisted that Deborah accompany him to the battlefield. She would come, she said, but as punishment for his failure to fully embrace God's mission alone, God would ensure that Sisera would be killed by a woman. So the Israelites marched to Mount Tabor, a mountain that is located today in Israel's north between Nazareth and the Sea of Galilee. There's a lovely guest house with a good breakfast spread if you're in the area. Anyway, the Israelites win, but the general Sisera gets away, hiding in the tent of a local woman named Yael. Yael was not an Israelite. She belonged to a neutral tribe, and she gave Sisera shelter, offering him a glass of milk and tucking him into bed so he could nap, at which point she grabbed a hammer and drove a tent peg straight through his skull. Thus it was Yael who finally defeated the Canaanite army on behalf of the Israelites, fulfilling Deborah's prophecy. The Song of Deborah, this perhaps oldest contribution in the Hebrew Bible, extols the virtues of Deborah, the victory of Barak, and proclaims Yael the most blessed of women. But above all is the glory assigned to the Israelite god Yahweh. It's a pattern that we see in this era. There's a military crisis, a charismatic leader emerges, the Israelites are victorious, and the glory goes to God. This is the era of the judges, the leaders of the Israelites before there were kings. That's today's topic. I'm Jason Harris, and welcome back to Jew Ought to Know. I would say to young people that we can do everyone our share to redeem the world. The period of the judges is a really important one in Israelite history, and therefore Jewish history. It takes place over about 200 years, from 1200 BCE to roughly 1000. The Israelites are now a distinct people, but they're still tribal. They're not unified together, and importantly, they don't yet have a king, so you'll also see this era referred to as the pre-monarchy. Instead of kings, the Israelites have various judges who assume king-like leadership roles. They're not really judges in the legal sense, they're more charismatic warriors who rise up to lead the Israelites against their enemies. The era of the judges is described in the Hebrew Bible, but not really anywhere else, so we don't have a whole lot of factual information to back up the biblical account. 
Yet, as we'll see, there are elements of the Book of Judges that reflect the historical realities of this era, even though it was edited hundreds of years later. But what makes the Book of Judges interesting is that it pulls together a lot of really old material, like the Song of Deborah, into a later edition that shares important ideas about Israelite theology, ideology, and views on leadership. Israel at this time is moving from the conquesting part of the narrative to the settlement phase. Remember that we have to hold two different narratives about this time period, the biblical account and the historical reality, which don't match. The Bible says it was a swift military conquest that secured Canaan for the Israelites. History tells us it was probably a gradual and generally peaceful process of settlement in which the Israelites essentially gentrified the Canaanites out of their territory. Here's the situation. The Book of Judges is accurately describing an era in which Egypt's power and influence in Canaan is on the downswing. New groups of people have risen to carve out their own territory and independence. The three major groups we ought to know are the Philistines, the Israelites, and the Canaanites, and they were all fighting each other. In 2020, archaeologists uncovered the remains of a Canaanite fortress in central Israel, next door to Kibbutz Galon. The fortress sat on the border between the Philistine territory along the coast and the Canaanite territory further inland, and it guarded the main road between the regions. It was a defensive fortification, built by the Canaanites as an outer perimeter against the Philistines who were pushing into their territory. And what's so cool about this fortress is that it's actual historical evidence which backs up the biblical story of what was going on. A complicated geopolitical situation in which the Israelites were trying to consolidate their territory in a fight between multiple other people. The Israelites are replacing the Canaanites in territory throughout the region, what is today mostly Israel, the West Bank, and parts of Jordan. So there's lots of Canaanite kings who need to be wiped out, and this era sees the Israelites moving from one area to the other, each tribe trying to secure their territory. By the end of this period, around the year 1000, the Israelites will be unified enough and face enough common challenges to start asking for a king. But in the meantime, it's the judges in the spotlight and it's quite an adventurous time. The Book of Judges situates the Israelites within this complicated geopolitical situation in Canaan. And the Israelites understood this time period through a formula that repeats itself over and over throughout the book. The Israelites sin in their unfaithfulness to God, so God sends an enemy to sack them. The Israelites beg for forgiveness. God appoints a warrior chief called a judge to set them free. The judge wins. Peace settles over the land for a while. And then the cycle starts all over again. Over time, things get worse and worse until eventually the Israelites demand a king to unify them. Now there are 12 judges in all, six major ones and six minor, each rules over a different tribe in a different place and fights a different enemy. Cumulatively, you end up covering the whole of the land of Canaan and all the tribes of Israel. It's a reflection of the historical reality of this time period, again about 1200 to 1000 BCE, in which the Israelites were not unified as a single nation, but were instead a decentralized society. Each tribe pretty much handled its own political, military, and religious affairs. Forget about Jerusalem as the capital city, or even that there was a central temple there around which everyone worshipped. 
but still a couple hundred years away. So the Israelites didn't have hereditary rulers like a monarchy, or even it seems permanent leaders at all. Instead, chiefs arose in each tribe when needed, primarily to fight off local Canaanite enemies. And these judges were hardly obvious choices in the ancient Near East. One is the son of a prostitute, one is from a very weak tribe, one is, dare I say it, a woman, that's Deborah. Instead, the trait they all have in common is a great deal of charisma. They are gifted with the powers of persuasion and, most helpfully, the confidence of Yahweh, the Israelite national god. But I will be with you, God assures Gideon, one of the more reluctant judges who protests his appointment as unworthy. Once these judges serve their purpose, they fade from view. They don't appoint their successors, there's no heirs, we simply move on to the next tribe, the next crisis, and the next judge. Indeed, there is only one ruler who remains consistent throughout the book, and that is God. Yahweh, says the book of Judges, is Israel's one and true leader. It's reaching back into history to place the primacy of Yahweh at the very beginning, even though we know from the last few episodes that it didn't quite work that way. The Israelites were still in their polytheistic phase, moving towards henotheism, the worship of Yahweh, but without denying that other gods existed. The judges aren't as famous as the kings and prophets, so you might not recognize their names or deeds. There was Ehud from the tribe of Benjamin, which ruled the area around Jerusalem. He gets in to see the king of Moab by pretending he has a secret message for him. Then he assassinates him with a dagger he had hidden in his left hand where apparently the king's bodyguards didn't think to look. And if you're thinking it's like that scene from The Godfather 3 when Lucchese gets murdered by his own glasses, well, yeah, it's just like that. Then there was Jephthah, the prostitute's son, who saved the Israelite tribes of Manasseh and Gad from the Ammonites. Amped up on victory, he promised to sacrifice to God the first person to come greet him after winning, which turned out to be his daughter. It's one of the few instances of human sacrifice in the Hebrew Bible, and in stark contrast to the famous story of the binding of Isaac by Abraham, not a great look. And there was Samson. If you are a fan of the TV series Outlander, Samson was kind of the Jamie of this era. The gorgeous warrior with the long hair and, no doubt, a sexy Near Eastern brogue. I talked about him in last season's episode about nuclear weapons in Israel. He was from the tribe of Dan, roughly where Tel Aviv and Jaffa are today. He fights the Philistines but is seduced by Delilah, who cuts off his hair and that's his source of strength and favor from God. Captured by the Philistines and strung up between the columns of their temple, he pulls the whole structure down, killing all of them and himself. But probably the most compelling judge is the one I mentioned at the beginning, Deborah, the only woman judge and one of the few female heroines of the Bible. Her story is not only interesting for its own sake, but for what it might also tell us about the actual historical situation of the Israelites at this time. So why is there a woman judge, and what does it perhaps say about the role of women in ancient Israelite society? 
Deborah is the rare woman in the Bible, and perhaps even the only one, whose life and deeds are not linked directly to a more important man, like a husband, son, or brother. We know almost nothing about her life except a passing mention of her husband's name, which means that her leadership stands on its own merits, her achievements on her own abilities. In the same story, we have Yael, who isn't Israelite, yet who also plays a heroic role. Indeed, the Book of Judges is unusual in how many women play decisive roles, though not always positive ones, as Jephthah's sacrificed daughter can attest to. But again, the question is, why? Well, for one thing, as I mentioned, the Bible describes this as a time when anybody could become a judge, a warrior chief. There was no monarchy passing the torch from male to male, no glass ceiling of national leadership above which women couldn't, in theory, penetrate. Although the Book of Judges as we have it today was composed several centuries after the era of the Judges, it was pulling in stories that had been written during that time, probably from different authors associated with different tribes. The story of Deborah is one of the oldest in the entire Hebrew Bible, probably written during or immediately after the events that supposedly took place. It is entirely plausible that Deborah herself was a real person. And remember, too, that while the Book of Judges may not be reporting facts, it does seem to reflect certain historical realities of life during this era. The structure of Israelite society from 1200 to 1000 BCE would have allowed for greater women's participation. The scholar Joanne Hackett writes that in a decentralized society facing a great deal of disruption, women and other marginalized members of society are more likely to have the opportunity to wield power. In ancient times, a tribal society like the Israelites operates, she says, locally rather than globally, without that king and his male heirs providing stability. Allegiances are therefore more close in, with your family first, and then your extended family, then your clan, and then your tribe. Hackett writes that leadership positions fall to whomever can get the job done, and in such a system, and in such conditions, women can play a much greater role in decision-making. And this is backed up by the archaeological record. We don't find much centralization in Israelite society during this 200-year stretch. That is, there's no capital city like Jerusalem with a single temple for the worship of Yahweh. Each tribe instead had their own central city and more or less their own religious or cultic sites. It seems they are still coalescing around this idea of a single people called Israel, which is why the Bible describes a certain fluidity to the tribes. Sometimes there's 10, sometimes 12, sometimes a tribe is located over here, but in another place it gets moved somewhere else. Scholars estimate that the population grew from around 20,000 people to around 50,000 people during this time. Even at the smallest level, we find this evidence of decentralization and segmentation as described in the Book of Judges. Throughout the territory where Israelites lived, we find what's called the four-room house, it's an architectural style distinct from other Canaanites and popularized by the Israelites starting during this time. Its basic layout could be used in a variety of ways, shared between people and livestock and sometimes standing two stories tall, which given the smell that rises from the animals on the ground floor, it seems like it would have been a bad idea. Though, hey, people will do anything for lower heating bills. Now here's what's interesting. In most cases, the four-room house was just big enough to hold a nuclear family, parents and kids. There wasn't enough room for extended family, 
So instead, what you sometimes find in large enough settlements were compounds. Several of these four-room houses would be built in a small grouping with a courtyard in the middle. So again, we find individual family units clustered with their extended families to form small settlements of a single clan within the territory of a larger tribe. What's the point of all this? Well, if you peel out the great military victories from the Book of Judges, which may or may not be historically accurate, what you find is a description of a very tribal, very segmented Israelite society from 1200 BCE to 1000. Leadership fell to these local chiefs whom the Bible calls judges. And while we've got these people called Israelites, they don't yet have a unified territory called Israel. And this is the picture more or less captured in the archaeological record. All open to debate, of course, since we are ultimately lacking the evidence for definitive conclusions. Given how the oldest writings found in the Hebrew Bible are of women singing victory songs, we can be sure that women would have been important players in the era of the judges. Ultimately, though, there's a great flaw in the system of judges. This loose gathering of tribes, judges, and local decision-making only works up to a point. And that point comes for the Israelites when they face a more powerful enemy than the individual Canaanite kings they're able to fend off, either militarily, as in the biblical account, or through gentrification, as the historical account suggests. But now there rises in Canaan a formidable foe, the Philistines. The Philistines, you may recall, were one of the sea peoples who invaded the Near East when their own societies back in Greece collapsed. They had been at war with Egypt ever since, but by the 1100s had carved out territory in what is today the Gaza Strip and the southern Israeli coastline. With the Egyptians weak and the Canaanites on the de defense, the Philistines are starting to encroach further inland, which puts them up to the frontiers of the Israelite tribes. With a threat this powerful, the tribes have no choice but to band together as a single unit, and to coordinate such a merger of 12 tribes across a wide geographic area, you need a single, unifying figure who can hold it all together. At long last, the Israelites need a king. Don't forget to check out my website at jewidontknow.com, and my email is jewidontknowpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, everyone. Lehitraot. See you later.